0: It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes. More than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years
1: ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America and under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with
0: Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. We're coming to you from an absolutely sweltering Toronto today. Uh, we went outside to get some coffee beans, get some fuel before recording, just walked down the street, and uh, yeah, I, I'm not going outside again today.
1: And just in general, the the man across from me, he's a very tired boy these days. He's been working <laughs> on a really big project, which is really siphoning his energy. Uh, me, I've just been uh, uh, still recovering from the many. Uh, slings and arrows that life throws at me so you know really
0: we got two very tired boys two two wounded warriors here also the thing will's talking about is not uh my book which is coming out soon and which has started to ship so yeah i, I got a lot on my plate folks but it, it's
1: the it's the book after that book
0: <laughs> <laughs> but one of my favorite parts of the week is always getting together with uh, my boy will sloan here to talk about the things that are close to our hearts and this week's movie uh which was one voted on by our patrons those subscribers at the $10 a month uh, superdelegate tier who once a month get to uh, choose a movie uh, and often inflict something extremely bad on us. Well, this month there was a a dead heat uh, between Network and Robocop, which I think as precedent now uh, has established means we got to do both. So we will do network at some point. Um, but but we decided to start with the fun one. Yeah. And would you believe it? I'd never seen this movie before. I mean, I feel like this has been a long time coming. Will has been tossing it around as something just to watch. I think even before we had the podcast somehow never got around to it. But I'm so glad we watched it. Um, I had, a, had an amazing time. Uh, Robocop. Great movie.
1: Before we get to Robocop, I do have a little piece of uh, arts and entertainment news to dissect. This is kind of old news at this point. It's been married in the culture for over a week now, but I do want to put it on the record because of the grave implications that it has for all of us. Uh, So uh, a character who's come up once before on the Michael and Us podcast is Warner Brothers president and CEO David (laughs) Zaslav. And he came up a couple of
0: weeks ago, maybe- Well, because they've started sponsoring us, obviously.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A couple of of months ago, I think he came up because it was reported that when he took over the company, he called this meeting of all all the executives in the film division together and he was grilling them on a number of bad business decisions that had been made and one of the decisions was to green light Clint Eastwood's last movie, Cry Macho and they said, well, you know we we weren't sure that it would be successful but Clint has had a 50 year relationship with the studio and he's delivered many hits for us and apparently David Zaslav said words to the effect of we don't owe anyone anything we are no favors
0: he, he, want, he wants to replace filmmakers with robotic filmmakers
1: <laughs> maybe, <laughs> so you know, David Zaslav has, has been on my personal shit list ever since. I mean, I think I think what he needs to do is take a look at a little Warner Brothers movie called The Trouble with the Curve, in which uh, Gus Lobel, the old time baseball coach played by Clint Eastwood, learns that there's more to a baseball player than just the raw numbers on a sheet. You know, <laughs> sometimes there's a little thing called heart. There's a little th- a little thing called stamina, where where your where your head is in the game. Da- this David Zaslav character doesn't understand that. But anyway, a week ago came the, the shocking announcement, the announcement that rocked Tinseltown and the Gore Lieberman Studios, that the studio has decided to just sh- permanently shelve two movies that were something like 90 or 95 percent complete. One of them is called Batgirl. Uh, it's directed by the two filmmakers who made Bad Boys 3. It stars uh, Leslie Grace, who's a uh, kind of up-and-coming star, along with uh, Michael Keaton as Batman. Maybe you've maybe you've heard of him. Maybe you've heard of him in that role. Uh, as well as Brendan Fraser as the villain. Would have enjoyed seeing that. But anyway, they've just shelved this movie. And they've also shelved a Scooby-Doo animated film that, again, was supp- supposedly 95% complete. And the reason is Batgirl costs $90 million dollars which is less than they would normally spend on a superhero movie. A superhero movie might cost something like $200 million. But this movie was greenlit during a time when the previous administration at the studio was investing heavily in content for the streaming service HBO Max. This was gonna be the future. They're greenlighting a lot of things for that. Uh, David Zaslav has decided to move away from that model. Uh, it looks like they're phasing out streaming-only content and investing heavily in sort of event-style theatrical releases. So they've determined that this $90 million, I mean, again, $90 million is still pretty expensive. This $90 million Batgirl movie doesn't fit with any current Warner Brothers paradigm. It doesn't look like a theatrical event movie should, but they also don't want to just put it on streaming because that's not the business strategy they're pursuing anymore. So they've decided to claim it as a tax write-off. They think they will get the most bang for their buck out of it now to just not release it. Put it on the shelf forever.
0: Now, can I ask, as a tax write-off, I mean, is that uh, they're cutting their losses and treating it as a tax write-off means that they will just lose less? Or is there some bizarre uh, alchemy of the industry here which allows them to actually make some profit from that?
1: So I'm no businessman. <laughs> I'm no David Zaslav. I don't,
0: I don't know exactly. Well, you and I were small business owners.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know uh, how much they stand to lose or gain from it but they've apparently determined that this is the most profitable outcome. Now look, I don't want to defend Batgirl. Don't like being in a position of lamenting the loss of some huge stupid piece of corporate culture. Nevertheless, I actually do think this is abhorrent not just for the poor people who made Batgirl. And I am actually being serious here, kind of, because like, for God's sake, people actually did work on this thing. I do think they deserve to have it seen. People in all sorts of capacities. Fuck, I don't know if the directors are talented or not, but they did work on this thing. You know, it's a horrible thing to do to people. It's a horrible thing to do to people just for their careers. You hire somebody to play some up and coming actress to play Batgirl, like eight
0: months of shooting, whatever it is. It's
1: it's it's huge. And then to just just shit can that is a terrible thing to do to someone. But then on top of that, it's the culmination of treating film simply as this item on a balance sheet. Nothing matters except profit. Now, uh, I'm no businessman, I'm no David Zasloff, but I think the message that this sends is one that holistically is bad. It, uh, the implications of it, I think, could probably be worse for Warner Media than just releasing it and, and swallowing a bit of a loss, because it projects the idea that all of this is just product, and if you make something for us, it could just end up on the shelf at our whim.
0: There's one thing I'm not understanding here, which is the economics of not releasing it versus releasing it on streaming. I mean, you said that that's not part of their business model. But, but you know, it, it simply doesn't com- compute for me that it would be less profitable to release it on a streaming platform than it would to have it as a tax write-off.
1: Well, all of these streaming platforms have been losing money for a long, long time. Like Netflix is, I don't know how many billion dollars in debt, but they've been able to sustain themselves by creating the illusion of momentum. If you keep adding subscribers, and then if you keep creating new content that entices subscribers, then people will invest in this thing because it has that that momentum. When Netflix loses subscribers for a month, their stock goes down 20%. It's catastrophic if they have a month where they actually lose subscribers. You know, a lot of people, I have been wondering for years, well, how can you just how can Netflix just keep making these movies that cost $300 million and that they release for free and that I never hear anyone talk about? How is that viable? How is that a real business model? And I think maybe it isn't.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess this is clarifying it for me a little bit, because I guess the answer is that it's not. I mean, it sounds like very typical kind of venture capital behavior where, you know, the goal of the thing is less to make profit in the short term than it is to perhaps create the conditions for profitability 25 years down the road. Or exactly. Something. So it's it's an act of creative, well, what they would think of as creative destruction, as opposed to something that individual investors or most of them are are going to, uh, you know, drive profit from in the short term. You know, the, the land of milk and honey is always, you know, 20 years away. It's, it's like a Uber or parts of the gig economy work the same way.
1: Something else that Warner Brothers did in the last two weeks was they removed five HBO Max original movies from the service just removed them because they determined they were underperforming on the streaming platform and they figured it would be more profitable to take them off so they wouldn't have to keep paying residuals to the people involved in the movies. So the Robert Zemeckis film The Witches starring Anne Hathaway just disappeared one night because it was determined like you think if you have a streaming platform you just put these things on it like why not just have it in perpetuity you've paid for it but no actually they determined it's more profitable to now just erase these movies from the platform. (laughs) So, so keep your torrent links active. <laughs>
0: God, it's what's so great about you know the the digital world and the knowledge economy is you know things are forever and we're no longer bound by the limitations <laughs> of physical media. Yeah, we're just we're just disappearing movies on streaming platforms now. Fantastic.
1: By the way, before we get to the movie, I'd like to make a plug. Uh, if you've always dreamed of seeing your handsome co-host Will Sloan in person, you will have an opportunity later this month. Myself and a recent Michael Anas guest, Justin DeClue, and uh, Peter Kaplowski of the Toronto Film Festival, will be introducing a screening of one of our favorite movies, Don't Let the River Beast Get You, at the Fox Theatre in Toronto. If you know Don't Let the river beast Get You, I'm sure you're a fan. But if you don't, it's probably the most famous movie that was made by Matt Farley, who is most famous for having written 23,000 songs on Spotify.
0: You introduced me to Matt Farley. He's a, a fascinating figure. Is he going to be there? Sadly, he won't be, but I don't know. But you will. I, I'll be there.
1: <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a content creator almost as prolific you, as You You'll
0: be there as Matt Farley's tribute. I'm
1: like what the Pope is to God.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so just one more time, uh, where and when and what's the uh, what's the address of that theater for those who want to come it's
1: 2236 Queen Street East in the Beaches neighborhood and that will be on August 23rd at 7 o'clock get your tickets at foxtheater.ca and yeah if I can sell you on the movie it's probably the greatest backyard movie ever made it's a very funny horror comedy that's sort of like uh, the kids who made movies in their backyards with their parents when they were growing up with their camcorder imagine if they grew up went to college and then went back to their hometown and kept making backyard movies with their parents. It's one of the funniest and sweetest underground movies I've ever seen, and I think you'll have a good time. And if your dream has been to do a Mark David Chapman on me, uh, finally, you will have your opportunity.
0: Well, since we are doing plugs, I just want to mention that uh, my book The Dead Center will be officially out on September the 27th, but if you pre-order it now, it should actually ship very soon. Uh, You can get 15% off both the paperback and the ebook editions. Uh, I also want to say that I've gotten a number of messages from people who Pre-ordered the ebook edition and uh, haven't gotten it yet. So if that's you, uh, I am assured those have started shipping. I know it's an ebook, and you know shipping is seems like it should be a redundant concept. But I'm reliably informed that there is a different process related to the ebooks, and that they're actually uh, distributed differently than the paperbacks. So uh, if you pre-ordered one of those and it hasn't arrived yet, uh, don't fret. It should be coming soon. At some point, Will and I will do a proper discussion of the book. In the meantime, uh, I do want to say thank you for all the really kind messages I've got from people. I love uh, the tweets where people are showing their copies uh, arriving in the mail. It's been really, really nice after uh, the thing being just kind of a giant Google Doc for such a long time. Thanks so much, everyone. Uh, will and I, as I said, we'll talk about the book a little more properly down the road. He died a hero. And was reborn as
1: RoboCop. A one-man police force with the strength of an army, the speed of a laser, the brain of a computer, and a body made of steel. Looking for me? RoboCop. Rated R. Starts Friday, July 17th at a theater near you. By way of entrance into RoboCop, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but Uh, you know, over a decade ago, in the city of Philadelphia, there was this public poll of, you know, we're gonna we're gonna make a statue for some great Philadelphia native, and it's going to be erected in front of the Art Institute. And uh, we're going to do a poll, people are going to be able to nominate people and vote on it. And they ended up voting on Rocky. Yes, uh, Rocky (laughs) Balboa played by (laughs) Sylvester
0: Stallone. And
1: if you if you go to the Rocky steps, you know, the steps that he that he runs up,
0: Uh, there's just people like running up and down them and taking photos. Actually, yes. (laughs) Yes.
1: Uh, Inspired by that, you know, 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, in 2011, there were some people in Detroit who like tweeted at the mayor, hey, we need a RoboCop statue. You know, he's kind of our (laughs) hometown hero. And then they successfully crowdfunded it. (laughs) And I, I'm i sorry, I don't know. I'm sure we must have some listeners in Detroit who can maybe fill us in. They did build the statue. I don't know where it is, but I believe somewhere in Detroit there's a RoboCop statue. S- send
0: us, go take a selfie in front of the statue and tag the podcast. And I think this
1: this is very funny. And maybe, it, I don't know what it says about uh, the movie RoboCop. I don't know what it says about the city of Detroit that like, obviously Detroit has had a rough couple of decades. And like when they're thinking of what's a character, what's an icon that, that embodies the city there's something both sad but also wonderful and hilarious about choosing RoboCop who's this ultimate symbol of, you know the the ultimate movie about Reagan-era America the ultimate movie about the destructive force of capitalism (laughs) on our institutions you know, RoboCop this hideous symbol of everything wrong with America the good people of Detroit saying fuck it, let's (laughs) lean into it, you know
0: (laughs) RoboCop, that's our thing yeah, yeah so I suppose the most straightforward way into the movie is just to talk about the plot a little bit. Robocop is set in a kind of dystopian uh, future, apparently the near future, very much in keeping with a lot of movies from the 1980s, kind of, you know, dystopian futurist movies. It's the future, but it very much looks and feels like the 1980s.
1: And there was definitely something in the water in these movies in the 80s. Like, this movie, to some extent, owes a debt to stuff like, like the Charles Bronson Death Wish movies, where it's street gangs just running wild in the middle of a modern urban setting, but also, you know, a movie like Batman or Blade Runner, morning in America, and yet... Uh, the film industry keeps creating these visions of the cities are the worst possible fucking place right now, and they're only going to get worse. And we need we need some kind of fascist avenging angel to fucking get in there and just clean the streets up. Now that's not what Robo that's what Batman is, but that's not what RoboCop <laughs> is necessarily.
0: Yeah, well, because I mean, symbiotic with the message that it's mourning in America is that you know we're 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 taking out the trash, right? Everything that's come before this, all of the detritus of the sexual revolution, the hippie. Movement, the 1960s feminism civil rights we're sweeping that all away
1: because this is the natural culmination of all this like liberal hug a thug bullshit you've normalized all this deviant behavior and now now these people are running ramp now decent people can't even walk down the streets without the shit and the piss of the sexual revolution coming and robbing them
0: yeah and just having to look at the the feral underclass the people who refuse to get a job uh, etc and the thing is uh, as will says you know this movie very much has the vibe of, of you know a lot of these 80s movies you know it could almost be one of those you know Death Wish movies or something the thing about Robocop is that it's completely self-aware and that even though uh, you see these scenes of crimes unfolding the criminals are you know very similar to the ones you would see in a Charles Bronson movie you know they're I mean they are super predators they are without any compassion or empathy they are robbing people they are involved in you know the drug trade and things like that but so much of what they do is just about cruelty and violence. It's it's crime imagined, you know, this is a trope of these kind of movies from the 1980s, crime imagined as a, as a kind of cultural pathology rather than as a social phenomenon. Um, the thing about Robocop is that it holds the mirror to the Reaganite conception of America. It indicts the ideology of Reaganism in a very direct way. And this is clear right from the setup of the movie because even though we open in the Detroit Police Department, which is, you know, completely overwhelmed, uh, they seem to be suffering from budget cuts, which, you know, not everything in this movie is realistic, I guess. Uh, but but You see, uh, we, we can't defund the police. We have to fund, fund, fund the police. I, I mean, I suppose there's an interpretation of this where, you know, in the world of Robocop, there's nothing resembling a public sector left, right? Anything that you might have associated with, you know, something like the New Deal, that's been stripped away. There's really no sign that there's any kind of welfare state left or anything like that. And so the one part of, like, the one public institution. That remains is the, is the police, and the thing is, the police are not even a public institution anymore because they've been taken over by a mega corporation called Omni Consumer Products. I
1: like that you pointed out. I think halfway through the movie that in this movie the police union actually does function as a union,
0: <laughs> right? So so lingering over or looming over the whole uh, film is this threat that you know the police are going to go on strike because uh, their job is too dangerous. They have all these uh, funding cuts. Officers keep being killed and maimed and wounded did I think there's really also a sense that the police department, uh, parts of it, you know, do not like being taken over. I mean, their their autonomy has been interfered with by this mega corporation. Anyway, regardless of how uh, you interpret all of that, what the film opens with is this depiction of you know a quite seamless union of the institutions of law and order and private industry, omni consumer products. Which I mean, by the way, I love that as a title. It, there's no specific product being identified in the title. It's just consumer products in general. They're Amazon, basically. They
1: sell everything.
0: Yeah, they're just an ER corporation. Um, and, you know, at the beginning, we get to see this presentation by one of the executives. He starts talking about, you know, the values of this company. You know, we've always been extending ourselves into places where people said no market existed. Healthcare, you know, and he rattles off a bunch of them. But so, you know, this company has just seamlessly blended itself. You know, it's it's merged. It's done kind of a, a quasi hostile takeover of the, of the state and the various institutions of the state.
1: Now, much of the drama of the film is sparked by factional tension within this company. In that early boardroom scene that you mentioned, There are two competing visions for what the future of law enforcement should look like. The senior president of the company, Dick Jones, presents this massive android that horrifically shoots up one of the board members, just kills him in front of everyone, which gives an opening to a junior executive named Bob Morton to show RoboCop, which would sort
0: of be 50-50, you know, (laughs) half
1: human, half (laughs) robot, uh, all cop.
0: This is what's great about this movie is that it, it represents the dystopia as sort of so dystopian that like these are the poles of kind of like opinion that are left it's like within the corporation which just axiomatically now basically controls and dictates everything is that the more human vision that you know one of the capitalists has is like okay well you know maybe we'll take human beings and mutilate them and turn them into these killing machines but then you know at least there'll be jobs for those people and then whereas the other guy's like no we should just completely replace them with like these brainless things that we uh, control completely and have no souls to speak of
1: so the man who becomes robocop is alex murphy played by peter weller a normal detroit police officer and family man who's killed in the line of duty and because he signed certain release forms it gives the company power to do whatever they want with him after he's legally dead. They take his remains, they wipe his memory, or at least they think they wipe his memory, and put him in the iconic Robocop suit. He has three prime directives, serve the public trust, protect the innocent, and uphold the law. However, there is a fourth directive, which is classified information and that we only find out about later in the film. So for a couple of weeks, Robocop is the talk of the town. He seems a successful experiment. We see him stop petty criminal after petty criminal, uh, not unlike
0: Inspector Gadget. Some some more serious crimes as well. Oh, that's true. That's <laughs> true.
1: But you know, he he's like Batman. He's picking on the street criminals. But unlike a Batman, Man movie. The movie then fades into considering uh, sort of the higher level white collar crime that's enabling the system.
0: Right. I mean, this is one of the central things in Robocop is that the crime lord on the street who's kind of overseeing it all and who is uh, the guy who originally mutilates Robocop, he's actually working with the guy at OCP who wants to replace all the cops with the robots. So the film represents those two things, those two worlds is very much symbiotic, which is why it's so obviously an indictment of the Reagan era. And it also means makes very clear that the thing that binds these two worlds together is just the profit motive at one point early in the film when this executive is talking about the company extending itself into all these things where you know people said there'd be no profit like healthcare he delivers this line which is good business is where you find it and then a few scenes later there are some crooks discussing their business and one of them says no better way to steal than through free enterprise so the value systems of the two worlds are basically identical and they're not really presented as uh, opposed at all. Oh!
1: Your move, creep. Oh! It's, okay. it's, a it's okay. oh! Thank you, thank you,
0: madam. You have suffered an emotional shock.
1: Well, you won't be surprised to learn that co-screenwriter Michael Miner, identified as a hippie and was an outspoken critic of Reagan. In an oral history of the film for Esquire magazine, he said, The cocaine warehouse was originally written as a former supermarket, partly because we wanted to have Robocop throw clearance through floor-to-ceiling display windows. But for me, Detroit was the city destroyed by corporate America. Unlike any other major metropolitan area, you look at Detroit now, you see a city in ruins. Elsewhere he said, referring to co-screenwriter Edward Newmyer. Ed is an old hippie who protested the Vietnam War in the streets, with an FBI record and everything. Because we were in the midst of the Reagan era, I always characterized Robocop as comic relief for a cynical time. Milton Friedman and the Chicago Boys ransacked the world, enabled by Reagan and the CIA. So when you have this cop who works for a corporation that insists, I own you, and he still does the right thing, that's the core of the film. That's the fan base, the film's audience, because they'd be so disenfranchised that it now felt like they could strike back. In addition to that, I just want to briefly mention Paul Verhoeven. I mean, it's amazing that we haven't got to Paul Verhoeven on this podcast yet until now, because he is one of the great American directors— uh, not least because he is a Dutch filmmaker who, <laughs> who came to America. And like, whenever I see a, a Paul Verhoeven movie, I'm reminded of something that the great critic and filmmaker Luke Moulet said about the filmmaker Samuel Fuller. He wrote, On fascism, only the point of view of someone who has been tempted is of any interest. You know, you see Paul Verhoeven's American movies like this one, Starship Troopers, Showgirls, uh, to a lesser degree, maybe Basic Instinct. You know, they're really barbed, uncompromising satires of America, but like they, they also love it. You know, he loves sex and violence. Showgirls is a movie that's been reclaimed by so many people in recent years kind of because of the horrific vulgarity of it. You know, it's this critique of American vulgarity while also just like unapologetically wallowing in it and loving everything that's tempting about it.
0: Well, I mean, the violence in RoboCop is incredibly extreme. And I mean, and I think it actually at certain points kind of enters the realm of camp. It's a violence that's so baroque that I think in many cases, you're really invited to laugh at it. But then the act of laughing at it just underscores how incredibly bleak the world of the film is.
1: It's funny, there are some filmmakers like the Austrian filmmaker Michael Haneke, who, you know, Haneke is a very serious, uh, one might even say humorless guy, who when he's doing a media satire, he'll show you extreme horrible violence and it'll almost be a way of like he wants to shock you out of your complacency or he wants to say look at look at this horrible violence that you see in other movies and this is this is how horrible violence really is and I want you I want you to think about how bad violence is by looking at how awful this violence is right now and and that's what makes this movie different from other movies whereas when Verhoeven shows you it He's fully inviting you. Yeah, enjoy this violence. You want violence? Here's here's some, the most extreme violence you've ever seen. Here's more violence than than a, a human stomach should be able to accept. And I love it. And you're and you're gonna love it too if you can take it. I don't know which position is a, a morally more defensible, but I mean, I know which which one I find more interesting to think about.
0: One important point about the plot, which we haven't mentioned, is that the ultimate vision of the company OCP. The main reason it seems that they're working on what they, again, pretty hilariously called the crime management program, you know, because the management of crime, it's management, it's it's a bureaucratic (laughs) task. The real reason that they want to have uh, more effective policing is not really because they actually care about the safety or security of the residents, but because they're trying to create something called Delta City. Which when we first hear about it, it seems like, you know, they're trying to build a sort of, you know, D- Dubai, a sort of, you know, giant gated community playground for the rich or something like that somewhere in America or possibly adjacent to or or within Detroit. And it turns out that that is very much what they're trying to do, um, but there's an important detail which is that the executives at the company, what they're most excited about is that it's going to be a new market. One of them delivers a monologue about how we'll just think about the hundreds of thousands of workers that we're gonna, gonna be able to bring to Delta City. Think about the drug market, the market for strip clubs, Think about how much of a killing we're going to make. So again, I mean, this is the the main innovation of this movie is that the decadence of the corporate oligarchs and the rich and this world of lawlessness that they claim to want to rein in. The second is actually a corollary of the first. And, you know, they are quite deliberately symbiotic things because at the end of the day, I mean, the whole point of Reaganism was just to eliminate all restrictions on the uh, on the making of profit, destroy all regulations, destroy the idea that there's any kind of public good that isn't just synonymous with the relentless lust for profit.
1: I don't know where this fits into the discussion, but how do you like the media satire of the film? Uh, the news anchors and their kind of vapid broadcasts keep coming up like a Greek chorus. In addition to them, we keep seeing footage from this, what appears to be a sitcom of this old man being surrounded by very buxom women and like sometimes throwing pies at each other. And he just, and, he
0: just keeps saying, I'd buy that for a dollar. Yeah, <laughs> like putting his face
1: in women's cleavage and then saying that. Like The vision of American media is it's like, first of all, there's this thing called journalism, which is basically like where the, the Omni Corporation's press releases get read aloud. You have these people saying, oh, RoboCop is another great day, and here we are with a quote from the head of the Omni Corporation. And then in between that, you get dulled into this stupor by watching this incredibly stupid TV show with, like, an old man looking at cleavage. Well,
0: I I mean, I honestly found the news segments pretty upsetting, because they are so just like what you see <laughs> on actual <laughs> cable news. Like, did you notice in the, in the sequence at the beginning, where it's like the, you know, the theme music for the news program or whatever. There are all these different images of like, in some cases, horrific things happening. One of them is the challenger blowing up. And then just the whole tone of it is just they're like grinning as they're talking about these horrific atrocities and these like violent police actions and, you know, military exercises abroad. And then it cuts to the ads, which were my favorite part. And it's like the ads are a family playing some game called like Nukem, where it's some kind of geopolitical uh, nuclear annihilation family strategy game, you know, uh, 10 and under, fun for the whole family. I mean, it's so sinister, but I mean, it's only like a quarter of a notch removed from what you actually see on, you know, network news.
1: A few months ago on this podcast, I was talking about the last Liam Neeson movie, which is called Memory. You know, it's a Liam Neeson thriller that takes place largely at the US-Mexico border. And the plot involves Liam Neeson trying to stop this conspiracy of pedophilia and sex trafficking that, you know, major American political figures are, you know, they're, they're just they're just putting. Children who have been detained at the border through this sex trafficking ring, and Liam Neeson has to stop it. And, like, you see that two years after there's been this feverish discourse about kids in cages at the border. This thing that was talked about as, like, well, this is not America. This is the most horrific thing that's ever, you know, we have to stop this. For God's sake, somebody's got to stop this. And then, within two or three years, you know, it's still bad, but it just becomes grist for the mill for a Liam Neeson thriller. In RoboCop, there's this scene. It's a commercial parody with a game-like battleship, and it's it's basically about the Afghanistan war. Both news and the media in this movie is just this is where everything horrible about America goes and gets turned into a sort of edible paste that people are able to live with.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just like how uh, after RoboCop is mutilated, the only thing he can eat is this kind of mashed-up organic substance that's like baby food. You know, that's what sustains him in much the same way that you know the diet of media consumers is sustained
1: one problem with talking about RoboCop is it's such a great movie, but like so much of it is right there on the surface that there's not a lot to tease out. It's accessible to anybody.
0: Yeah, I would say uh, watch this movie unless you have a problem with extreme violence and gore because there is an awful lot of that. In
1: fairness, we did watch the director's cut, which I think is maybe, what, 30 seconds longer than the theatrical version. But those 30 seconds, <laughs> my God, they really do pack a punch.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a scene towards the end where one of the, the minor villains in the film, RoboCop... He's trying to run Robocop over and Robocop makes him drive into like a big vat of toxic waste. And then he just kind of like spends the next 30 seconds just melting and just getting more and more mutilated.
1: Do you find that you're getting more sensitive to extreme violence as you get older? Because, you know, the scene where Peter Weller gets his hand blasted off and he's just staring at like that stump like hand with blood pouring out of it. It hits me more than it did when I was like 16. You know, I used to just watch stuff like this and not be affected by it. at all but now I'm now I am affected by it now I see the guy get blasted up by the robot just be covered in blood and I do feel it so let's say RoboCop was made today, and yes, I know that there was a RoboCop remake a couple of years ago. I didn't see it. I didn't hear anything good about it. But if RoboCop was made today, uh, how would he be different? Uh, would, would Amazon own him?
0: Well, I mean, the big question is, does the film have the same writers and is Paul Verhoeven directing it? Because I mean, it does seem very of its time in the sense that, you know, it's very much a movie of the 1980s, but the people behind it don't seem to have stumbled upon this vision. I mean, they really believe in it. I mean, in, in that sense, I think it might actually be fun to watch the the RoboCop remake to see if it's actually just like some kind of law and order film or something.
1: I I would be curious to watch it too, because I could also imagine like the people with the charts and the graphs who greenlit it being like, well, um, anti-corporate satire has to be in here somewhere because that's essential (laughs) to the RoboCop brand. Clearly, the guy who runs the company is still going to be bad.
0: Yeah, but like, is there going to be a scene where, you know, RoboCop just like Executes a corporate executive in like a boardroom because that's the kind of thing I can imagine being taken out if uh, you know if the film was in someone else's hands. You know
1: what they would do? They would they would make it and um, folks. We should watch
0: the RoboCop remake. Yeah, we're obviously just speculating. We could be completely wrong about this. Perhaps
1: it's a masterpiece. Perhaps it's even better than this one is. But I, I would imagine that there's got to be, like somebody's been reading their screenwriting manual and they've got to make it so that the RoboCop suit becomes more of a liberatory thing than it does in the first movie. Like at the end of the RoboCop remake, I think he will become become even more of a man than he was before, <laughs> you know? Like like the suit will have allowed him to become his best self rather than at the end of RoboCop, the original, where I think it's like he's still basically a pretty compromised man at the end of the film.
0: I mean, there's that line which had a lot of emotional weight where he's talking about his family. Like he's oh, had yeah. his, his memory erased and he's saying like, I can feel them, but I don't remember them, which Ugh. is such a chilling line. I Actually, at that point, I didn't know how much was left in the film. And I actually thought that might be the end of the film when, when he said that. And I actually think that would have worked as a statement about what the film's events had done to their protagonist.
1: I like that he doesn't reunite with the family. It would have been the cheap and easy thing to do to give him a sort of powerful scene where he gets to see the family again, but he doesn't. This has been completely taken from him, and and can never come back.
0: You haven't dismantled your MX stockpile. Pakistan is threatening my border. That's it, Buster. No more military aid.
1: Nuke them. get them before they get you.
0: Another quality home game from Butler Brothers. Listeners to last week's non-Patreon episode of the Michael Ennis podcast will have heard uh, an appeal we put out for a 2004 film directed by Alexandra Pelosi called Diary of a Political Tourist. Uh, I will say that we got some responses back from people. Uh, People have some breadcrumbs, some ideas for avenues that we could pursue. We've covered Alexandra Pelosi's corpus quite extensively on this podcast. This one, which I think was her second film... Is a documentary about the 2004, I guess, democratic primaries, or maybe it's just the campaign in general. We have to do an episode um, of this movie on the podcast. It has proven more difficult to find than I think anything else, which is incredible because it was directed by the daughter of Nancy Pelosi. I guess it was produced in conjunction with HBO. Well, the
1: powerful forces are at work. Right. Stopping. Just like you
0: said, they can disappear movies now. Oh, my God. <laughs> I have put out uh, an appeal to the Toronto Public Library to do something called an interlibrary loan, where they're going to request, allegedly, this is how it works, is they can request uh, a library in another city, I guess, uh, in North America, <laughs> and, it, it, and it can take up to up to eight weeks, uh, and you might have to pay a fee, and you have to, this is, I've, I've never... Kevin Costner himself, as the postman, <laughs> will be riding his horse <laughs> with the DVD in his pack to deliver it to us. I have never... I've never experienced, I've never seen anything like this before, but uh, the portal, when you're filling this form out, it's quite an elaborate form. And it asks you, what's your ceiling for how much you'd be willing to pay for this? And I mean, you know, we are podcast thousandaires. So, you know, we have uh, some money at our disposal. We're small business owners. I just cannot believe that, you know, there's there's like 30,000 people are going to hear this. And I can't believe there isn't one person who knows how to get us 2004's Diary of a Political Tourist. If you have any leads, please help your humble co-hosts out. And we will give you a shout out on the show when we triumphantly do the episode.
1: Now watch this drive.